God from the 8th chapter of Romans beginning at verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. May the Spirit of God who inspired the Apostle Paul to write these words also work in our hearts to understand and apply them. This eighth chapter of Romans deals with the certainty of our coming glory. It is to remove all questions from every believer, whether or not we shall finally be present at Christ's glorification and ours. Certainly we shall. Nothing will stop that from coming about. Yet the Christian will have in his mind, inevitably, the question, how about my sufferings? How do they reconcile with my glory? I'm on my way to heaven and to being with Christ, but what about these troubles and pains here and now? It's the same question that believing people have asked through the centuries. Why do the righteous suffer? The eighth chapter of Romans is a part of God's wonderful answer to that question. Because what it does is to keep together the glory that shall be with the suffering that is. Now that's always the way of the apostle. If you look through his writings, whenever he speaks about the glory or heaven or what shall be, he comes immediately alongside and attaches the next car of that train, which is the Christian's pain. That comes right along with it. The two are held together. And so did Jesus. When he talked about the wonders of being the Son of God and returning as the Son of God in all his glory with his angels, he immediately began to speak of the cross and all of the struggles that were between him and that great day. That's God's way of dealing with this matter, keeping the suffering and the glory together. The Apostle Paul did not arrive at this combination of themes, suffering and splendor, easily. It's not just a, an idea that he, he tosses out there. He uses those words, I consider... In the King James, I reckon, which means that after logical, serious thought, I have arrived at a settled conclusion on this matter. I'm not simply giving you something from the top of my mind. 
I have delved deeply into this topic, and as an apostle commissioned by Christ with a divine mandate to give you consciously the truth of God, I say this is the way it is. I reckon, I deduce after serious and logical consideration. Now the answer to our reconciling suffering and splendor by keeping them together is a unique answer in all the world. No religion of man has such an explanation or approach. No human philosophy ever comes near this Christian understanding of suffering. The most profound sentence in all of human literature or anywhere to be found in the writings of man is verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You can't find that anywhere. Be glad today that you're a Christian, for you have an, a unique understanding of the pains and struggles of human life which no one else has. And that approach that is given to us here is simple. We want to make things difficult. We preachers are good at that, taking the simple, making it complicated. But not the Bible. The Bible takes the very profound and makes it clear. And it's as clear as this that the Christian is called to keep the suffering and the glory together and never to let them be divided. What God hath put together, let no man put asunder. You see, if you do that, if you bring the suffering and the glory of the Christian life into one unit, you will never be surprised at suffering. I've heard Christians that were surprised. Why did this happen to me? They were shaken by struggle and trial that came. They couldn't handle it. No, God says put them together. And I would like, under God's help and depending upon him, to give you three reasons why the Christian must keep the suffering and the glory together. The first is that the glory to which we're moving explains the suffering. You won't be able to handle suffering unless you understand it, where it comes from and what it is. If it's a mysterious foe, how can you fight it? But the glory explains it. Let me show you what I mean. Back in Genesis we read, And God created man in his own image, male and female created he them. He created us with glory and for glory, to bask in his glory, to take his hand and revel in the glory of his created world 
to be glorified by our friendship and fellowship with him. All of life was to be glory for us in innocence and divine presence and power and, and lordship over all his work. That was our glory. And you can trace this still. You look at the most godless of men. Even that man is striving to recover that glory. He's trying to excel in his salesmanship. He's trying to excel as an architect. He's trying to win a political office. He's looking unconsciously for a restoration of a lost glory and witnessing to what we had. But we introduced sin, rebellion against God into this beautiful setting. We disobeyed, and we fell, and God brought a curse upon childbearing, upon the tilling of the soil, and death itself, so that this wondrous situation into which we were brought was ruined, and the devastating effects of sin permeated every part of creation so that no aspect of human life is in the order and glory in which it was made. There's our understanding of how suffering exists. It's not a creation of God. It's the effect of our sin as it has created a fallen world. God left this world as it is, fallen, to be an object lesson that we might, looking upon it, realize what the path leads to when we fail to yield to the will of God, and that every departure from God's will will be visited with God's punishment. We're not in mystery, then, about the origin of suffering. It's not something God did. It's the result of human sin. Not necessarily the sin of the sufferer, but the sin of the whole race of people has introduced weakness and poverty and disaster and sickness into the human life. It's our glory from which we've departed that explains our pain. And our salvation is God restoring that glory. In other words, when a soul is regenerated by the Holy Spirit, that is, given within the ability to believe and repent and embrace Christ, then that soul becomes a new nature, a new creature, and God begins to put the various parts back together again. Salvation means wholeness. That which was fragmented is gathered. So, God, never being content with that which is short of perfection, goes on in the rebuilding of this lost glory till finally we move from one degree of glory to another, and at last we are again in his image at the day of Jesus Christ. And that's the goal of glory. 
Do you see then why it is so important for you to keep the suffering and the splendor together? Because without the glory, you can't understand this suffering in which we are now engaged, where it came from or what it means or how God is going to overcome it. And the more mysterious it is to you, the harder it is to bear. But there is another reason that God wants us to keep these two together. The glory uses the suffering in preparation. The glory uses the suffering in preparation. I mean by that that when God made us new, all that are believers in Christ have become new creatures, and the old has passed away and a a new nature has come, and we're walking in that newness of life. But he left a lingering element of sin in our members. There is still a residue of remaining sin, sometimes called indwelling sin, which remains within us. And why? We would that it were not there, but God knows he could have done differently. In his wisdom, he allowed it to remain. For one, one of the reasons is this that we would never forget the terrors and the dreads and the devastation that human sin wreaks in the personality. If we were immediately free and eradicated of sin, we might, when we reached Christ in glory, have forgotten that from which we'd been saved. And we might not be able to sing unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. But by allowing sin to remain as a trace within us, a nuisance in our being, something we still have to wrestle with, allowing that to be there, we can never forget that enemy from which we have been set free. And we can never stop thanking Christ for the deliverance over sin which he has given us. And the suffering in which we are engaged as Christians is something like that. Don't ever let a preacher or religious teacher tell you that by accepting Christ all your problems are over with a snap of the fingers. No more troubles, no more difficulties. That simply is not true. That is false to the gospel and to our Lord. The Christian is heir to all the shocks that flesh has. And we experience the difficulties of life just like others. But Christ says, I will be with you when you go through the fire. I will never leave you nor forsake you. But when we go through the suffering, they are not wasted. For God in his infinite wisdom takes those very difficulties we have, all the struggles and trials, and takes those and uses them to refine and deepen our character. Thus Paul could say, suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, 
Or as we read in the King James, tribulation worketh patience. How glorious that is. That that which could be a scourge upon us, which we could resent and hate, is instead a friend, a tool of God that polishes and brightens and sharpens and leads the soul so that we read in Scripture the pain that God is allowed to guide purifies us. Let no Christian, therefore, resist the intrusion of some trial into his life as if it were a strange thing happening to him, but welcome it as a friend knowing that because you're a believer, God will use that difficulty as heavy and sorrowful as it is to shape your character and prepare you. Well, we read in Hebrews, without holiness shall no man see the Lord. But where is our level of holiness? On a scale, our, the measure hardly shows of our holiness. How shall we become holy except that when suffering looms upon the horizon and some awful dread visitor stands before us, instead of running from him or hating him, we remember the words of Jesus. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross follow me. That struggle, that trial you are enduring in front of you is not to be resisted, but to be carried as an officer of God in the shaping of your soul. How does God make us ready for heaven? But by the visitation and the employment of sufferings and struggles. Nothing can come to us but what he sovereignly allows to come. See why you must keep the suffering and the glory together? How else could you pick up some mean and hard cross which you would wish were out of the way? You see, rather than shaking your faith, suffering strengthens your faith. Because the suffering is a proof that you belong to Christ. Throughout Romans, we have been seeing the levels of assurance of salvation. And one level is that you're being led by the Spirit of God. That's a, that's a kind of assurance. And another is you've received the Spirit of adoption. And you cried, Abba, Father, and you've had the witness of the Spirit. All these are levels of assurance. And here's another sign that you are a son. If you can see how suffering has entered your life, and how though, though you're not doing it perfectly, nevertheless you are trying to receive this struggle in such a way that it purifies and deepens and refines your being, then take that proof of your sonship. This is a part of 
the certainty of the believer. All who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And when suffering comes your way, you can say there, it proves I'm an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ, that I not only will be glorified with him, but I also suffer with him. This is a badge of believing. Isn't that what Paul did? When they questioned his apostleship, and they said, Paul, we don't really think you're genuine. What did he do? Did he take a diploma off the wall and show, him, show them he'd graduated from the University of Tarsus or from Gamaliel's school? What did he do? Did he show them his letters? He took off his shirt and he showed them his body. He said, let no man trouble me. I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Here are the scars, wounds that came because I'm Christ's, sufferings that I bore in my body. Who can challenge my being the Son of God? And you can do that. You can take the symbols of that dread visitor that came to you and make them emblems of your inheritance in glory. You see, glory uses suffering as preparation, as proof that you're on the road to glory. Not everyone that suffers is going to heaven, but you will know it in your heart if your effort to handle that suffering is joined to Christ and looking to him and utilizing it for your pilgrimage. And there is one other way or reason that we are called to keep the splendor and the suffering together. It is the most important reason of this great text. It is this, that the glory far outweighs the suffering. If you have these two things separate, you can't compare them. But you keep them together, and the difference will be striking. You see, if you keep them together, your suffering is seen against the background of the glory that you will have. For on this great stage, the drama of God's glory will be played out. And you won't be an onlooker watching the glory of Christ up there in the heavens, and you're simply a spectator. No, no. The King James, this RSV sounds like that, revealed to us the glory that is to be revealed to us as if we were sitting in the seats watching the glory. But that isn't true at all. The King James says, revealed in us. And that's accurate, revealed in us. In other words, because we're joined to Christ, who is the central actor of the drama, his glory will be imparted within our being and will shine out from us, and we will be revealed to be what we have been in a hidden way all along, the sons and heirs of God. 
so we are actors with him, partakers in the glory, and see yourself now on the stage with Christ. And out of you is burning, radiating the light of his love and his purity and his holiness. And now all the angels and all the world can see that which was done in secret here on earth. You are Christ. And on the drama of human judgment, it is known for everyone that you belong to him. Think of that moment. And at the footlights, put your own struggles now. I don't know what it is, but put it there and see it against that backdrop of the glory that is to be revealed. And compare it. See how the one fits with the other. And you'll begin to see why you have to hold them together. That's what the apostle does here. He's doing some spiritual arithmetic here. He's adding up a column. And let's see what he puts in that column. It's, uh, the, the factors of that equation are in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where he, he tells us just what he had in that, in that column. Chapter 11, excuse me. He says, <clears throat> I had, let's see, at the top he said, I can't even count them, countless beatings often near death. That's the first thing. Five times I've received at the hands of the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I have been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I have been shipwrecked. A night and a day have I been adrift at sea. Frequent journeys, dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, from the Gentiles, in the city, in the wilderness, at sea, false brethren, toil, hardship, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, without food, cold, exposure. Now we could add other things from other parts. Then he draws a line. Let's see, that's quite a list. Quite a list of sufferings. I think Paul was the most competent man in all the world to write this great text. Because who else could amass a list of such sufferings? Then he goes to the other side of the equation. Let's see what I'll put there. And that's also in 2 Corinthians 12. And in 12 he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. In other words, he saw the glory. And this man was caught up into paradise. And he heard things that cannot be told. Things that a man cannot utter. All oh, the glory of what Paul saw. The crown of life. The riches of eternity. The presence of Christ. The song of the angels. And so to be forever with the Lord. And when Paul looked at these two columns. Here were the shipwrecks. Here was the song of the angels. He said, you know, the one is not even worth comparing with the other. Here is an infinite sum, so much greater that I cannot even mention this column at all. This present momentary affliction is nothing compared to that eternal weight of glory.
slight, momentary affliction and an eternal weight of glory. Oh, that's holding the glory and the splendor together and seeing them as they really are. You cannot regard your sufferings apart from your splendor. The only way to see them and understand them and appreciate them is bring them together. You know, the Bible is very realistic about struggles. Not every religion is. The Bible looks troubles head on, face to face, and after adding them all up, says they're nothing compared to what will be. Isn't this Abraham? He suffered greatly, but he said, I'm looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. Isn't this Moses? He esteemed the riches, the reproach of Christ as greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. This is Christ. This is Moses. Ah, dear friends, where are you? Have you made the comparison? Or are your eyes just fixed on the struggles and the trials? Is that where it is? I yearn for you in the name of Christ to take that particular trial that vexes you so greatly and see it in the light of the glory that is to be revealed in you. Some of you are very young. You haven't suffered yet. But you've seen adults suffer around you. Maybe some of you have suffered. I ask you, young person, to whenever you see your parents or other Christians struggling, don't let it weaken your faith. But see their struggles in the light of the glory they will have with Christ. Some of you have been asking, how can I learn to witness? And you'd like to be able to be a strong witness for Christ. And yet, at the same time, you're shunning that particular disappointment, unemployment, poverty, frustration, sickness, or trouble that is gripping you. You want to be a witness, and you're shunning the very thing that God wants to use you in a witness. There is no more glorious witness that a Christian who mysteriously, before the world, picks up their suffering with gallant heart and glad spirit and carries it for the glory of God. That's a witness. And some of you have before you right now a suffering which you are resisting. And you're thinking, I don't want this. I want this to be taken away from me. But I say to you, welcome it now as a friend. Let hope be your comfort and your guide as you look forward to the glory. This present thing that is before you is the very thing that God will use, not some other thing. This particular vexation is what God wants to use. Let him use it. Take up your cross and follow him. 
are those of you who are strangers to what I'm saying today. You don't really have the glory with which to keep the suffering together. You have the sufferings, but you don't really know the glory. Because not having been savingly united to Christ, you have no revelation, no drama that's going to unfold. You don't really have an expectation of being with Christ throughout eternity. You're not even sure you want that. My heart breaks for you. You will have all the sufferings that Christians will have, at least most of them. But you'll have no one to walk through them with you. You're going to endure the pains of life all alone. And you will be suffering futilely. Because the suffering, instead of refining and deepening and sanctifying you, the suffering will make you harder and more bitter and more and more alienated and angry with God. I've seen it happen. Instead of the suffering preparing you for glory, the suffering will be to you a foretaste of eternal punishment, a little glimpse of what the wrath of God feels like. Why do you have to drink deeply of that fountain? Is it not enough what you have already experienced? Let the pains you have known move you to the Savior. He says, come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I give you rest. I yearn for you to come. For eternity is at hand. But a moment and we shall go into the presence of God and stand before the righteous judge. In a fleeting moment we shall all be there. Then for the righteous, the sufferings of this present age will be nothing, nothing compared to the glory. But for the unrighteous, they will have been a warning and a preparation to receive the Savior, unheeded and lost. Will you come to Christ? Let us pray. Blessed Lord, how wise and gracious you have been to take even the result of our own sinful ruin of the world and sweeten it to us and make it to us as a benediction and a grace. We thank you for that. And we ask forgiveness when we have resisted the anguish and the sorrow and the loneliness and the difficulties of life. But now we would take them, we'd pick them up and carry them. They're nothing compared to what shall be. And some of us have walked alone with our sufferings long enough 
Now we want to put our hand in the hand of Christ and have him sweeten our sorrows and our pains that they may have a constructive place in our life. We repent and we believe and we embrace the Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.